The season is on hiatus, but A's Plus is still going. I'm Susan Slesser of the San Francisco Chronicle, and even though I'm sheltering in place, I am still bringing you news about the Oakland A's and Major League Baseball, how players like Marcus Simeon, Jesus Lizardo, A.J. Puck are handling the shutdown, and how the coronavirus crisis will change the A's plans when things get back to normal. A's Plus on your favorite podcast app. Hello and welcome to A's Plus, the San Francisco Chronicles podcast on the Oakland A's and Major League Baseball. I'm your host, Chronicle A's beat writer Susan Slesser, and today we have our second in the A's Gone By series featuring former A's players. And today we're very lucky to talk to Micah Bowie, the one-time Oakland reliever who has struggled with some very serious health concerns the last couple of years. His story is truly amazing and inspirational. This is a two-part podcast here is part one. Welcome to the A's Plus podcast. Today we have another in our A's Gone By series. Uh, and we've got a really special guest today, former A's reliever Micah Bowie. Uh, Micah, as many of you probably know, has undergone some really major health issues in the last few years. Um, really critical, um, pretty horrifying um, things. Uh, and I think it's kind of an uplifting story, really, ultimately. But Micah, in, in, I know it's probably not even very easy to explain it in a, any sort of brief manner, but you developed back pain while you're, during your playing days, which is pretty typical for, a, for you know, any sort of athlete, but a, a reliever, I think that's, it's not too uncommon. Did you have that when you were playing for the A's in 2002, 2003? Yeah, so you know any 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 type of rotational sport and, uh, and pitching and pitching for a long time, uh, you know it's it's really hard. As much as you protect yourself, working out and doing all the things, you know, you're, it just takes a toll on your body. And uh, and I was no different, and, and uh, took a pretty a rather large toll. And uh, and I was having back pain then, but you know it's when you're with the teams and, and you've got you know the chiropractors there, you've got a trainer every day, you've got. Uh, you know, strength coaches and, and people that are constantly managing and helping you manage symptoms and working with you. Um, it's much easier to manage injuries uh, as a player, obviously, and, and play through them uh, versus when you get home and you're, you're you're done with baseball. You know, all of those uh, things that got you moving each day, um, you don't have access to, and it it gets harder and harder and harder to move around. Yeah, and so. As you after you left the game, which was in what about two thousand and eight? Two thousand and eight. Yes, you. So your the pain kind of got more and more. When did you decide to start exploring different options for surgery? Um, as far back as two thousand and ten, two thousand actually two thousand nine, two thousand ten, uh, we had started trying to see what alternative therapies there were. Um, I'm not a big fan of surgery, uh, and so we're we're trying to see if uh, any kind of stem cells or uh, what different technologies and different things there were uh, to try to help manage this. Uh, obviously, being in the in your 30s and uh, moving on from baseball to real life, and and trying to manage, uh, you know, we opened a business and and built things and did stuff, and and we're we're very successful moving out of baseball into the to the real world. But uh, the pain just continued to grow and catch up. So we started as far back as right after baseball, uh, looking for options and alternatives um, to, to do things. Uh, and as far back as 2012, I, I couldn't walk. There were there were times where I, I 
would be three or four weeks, uh, could walk the uh, vertebrae where uh, had basically your the pads between the vertebrae are kind of like donuts and mine had torn mm -hmm. and the tears had pushed into the nerves and whenever those got irritated they would inflame the nerves going down your legs and, and it basically kind of paralyzes you and so there were many a day I couldn't walk starting as far back as 2012 I had a walker in a wheelchair oh goodness and you, and you have a baseball academy that's not very optimal for, for running something it, like that or it anything. was not but we, you know, I used a lot of video and, and uh, you know, we had a, a lot of great kids and, and there was a whole lot I could do sitting in a chair. And I figured even if I couldn't walk, I could always teach lessons, work with kids, uh, using an iPad or technology to help make up for my inability to move around real well. And that's what we did. We, we, we adapted uh, as much as we could um, through that time frame. And, uh, and brought on extra employees and extra staff to throw BP and do the things that I could no longer do. Um, but we, we managed it as, as you do. You just, you know, as the game, you know, someone hits a home run off of you, you know, you got to make an adjustment to make a better pitch and same thing in life. Uh, so we just, we tried to make every adjustment we could and, and adjust with every pitch we were dealt and, and uh, every home run that was hit against us. We tried to come up with a solution uh, as long as we could. So which, which vertebrae uh, were affected uh l4 l5 and then l5 s1 so there's actually two sets of vertebrae and then they, they were mentioning double fusions um back in 2012 i was getting shots in my back and different things uh doing the different therapies that there were physical therapy uh cortisone shots epidurals you name it uh they were doing trying to do every type of thing water therapy you name it to get uh to get it moving and just everything uh seemed to everything that actually made it worse uh it it was it was to the point where it was not uh rehabable wow that's that's um that's so frightening so you decided to go a different way um rather than spinal fusion which i know is a tricky procedure and not um, the success rate is certainly not 100 percent with it um you hear stories in sports all the time about fusion surgeries that don't quite work explain to us what you did and why so we need so I need and still do if I were ever to move around very well a double diffusion and at my age when I was, when we were starting to look at this at 38 years old um, the every doctor we saw said if we start fusing your back now um, with the damage that we can see in your spine already you're going to be having fusions every five years by the time you're you're 50 or 55 your entire back's going to be fused and you're going to be having surgeries every couple of years and you know you're going to be in the cycle of just surgery and rehab and so we had a neurosurgeon um, offer us a spinal cord stimulator um, if uh, you a lot of people if they're on uh, opioids um, many people are being forced into these spinal cord stimulators and I was obviously on pain medication uh, to try to manage this and I had maxed out uh, what our doctors would prescribe and um, we were at a point where there was you know basically we either had to have surgery or do something because the medication was that I was being given at the time wasn't enough and uh, I still wanted to walk and move and, and try to, to do things and so um, a lot of uh, back surgeries are given a spinal cord stimulator after the surgery to help control the pain and really and uh, cut down the amount of uh, opioids or pain medications that patients are on. And it's uh, something that pretty much across the country, uh, uh, 
many thousands and thousands and thousands of pain patients are being forced into with back pain now into these spinal cord stimulators. And so we, as the, it was a neurosurgeon, a very highly regarded neurosurgeon, and he brought us the uh, information. We talked to the representative. We went and researched the product. And we said, yeah, this is definitely a much better way to go than uh, a spinal fusion. And uh, seemed to, we it felt we had a lot less risk attached to it. It's, it's more non-invasive type surgery. And so uh, we had the trial done and uh, had some relief from it. And we went ahead and had the uh, permanent solution put in. When, and when was that? That was in August of 2016. So you do a, a trial for... Uh, a week to 10 days where they have you have a battery basically kind of taped to your body and they put wires up into your spine and they see if it helps and then when they do the permanent they input the battery in a little computer and they place it in a little pocket Uh, it's supposed to be in a subcutaneous pocket inside your uh, back and then the wires run from there inside to your spine and then go up your spine uh, to the areas where they can catch the pain signals coming uh, through the spinal column and basically uh, interrupt them is what they do. They don't take away any pain or solve any problems. They just interrupt the pain signals going to the brain so you can't feel it. And, uh, and so that was, uh, so we had that done in August of 2016. Wow. And, and when did you start developing problems thereafter so uh, one month after surgery to the day september 30th 2016 i was asleep and i awoke to an extremely sharp pain and i couldn't breathe on my right side um the now determining since through a whole lot of issues and a whole lot of no this is impossibles and the doctor saying this can't happen and 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 literally dozens of doctors saying impossible um the spinal cord stimulator battery migrated up through my liver, right side diaphragm, uh, into my right lung. Oh, God. It's just horrifying. I mean, that sounds, I'm assuming it's every bit as painful as it sounds like. It, it is an entire, and multiply that. It was, uh, it was an incredible amount of pain. And, uh, you know, probably the, the hardest part, because um, I was on uh, post surgical pain medication and they had given me some stronger medications uh and nothing was really helping and, and the hardest part is no one believed me uh it was a, it was it was a nightmare scenario honestly my, my wife you know she's like they're saying this isn't supposed to hurt you know and i'm like i can't breathe this is you know and and you well, you're in a month you're supposed to be getting better and we went into the surgeon immediately and uh, they took x-rays, and the x-rays show that the battery did migrate. It doesn't show where all it migrated to because it just got it at one point in time, but we took pictures of the charging pack. It's kind of like a cell phone. Oh. You've got a, a, a portable char- a charger, wireless charger. You put your cell phone on. If you don't place it just right, it won't charge. Well, that's what they have for the little battery, and I was charging. We took pictures of where I was charging this battery all in my chest, oh. and uh it was crazy the locations then we were showing this to the doctor after doctor hospital after hospital because when this happened uh it affected my blood uh, blood oxygen levels i had fluid in my lungs my lungs collapsed um my uh it was it was it was pretty rough we ended up going into the to the er numerous times um and and the hardest part was no one believed me because 
medically they couldn't find anything that said that this is possible. You know, you sign forms when you go into the doctor, like when you're having a surgery and, and you sign all of this list of bad things that can happen. Nowhere does it say that it can destroy your breathing and and stuff. And, yeah. and that was just only one of the things. So it took, uh, took three months of going through that before they did a revision surgery and they removed the battery from where it had migrated to and settled and they moved it down into my hip. That was in the end of November of 2016, and in December of 2016, I went on medical oxygen, and uh, my O2 sats were just dropping rapidly. I was sitting in the 70s and 80s. Uh, as everyone now understands with coronavirus, when your O2 sats drops, it affects all of your systems. Uh, you know, it affects your kidneys, it affects your liver, it affects your neurological function. And I was having all of these symptoms. I couldn't remember anything. I was I was very forgetful. I was uh, wasn't lucid all the time. Uh, we make a joke now, but a lot of my friends were getting some really crazy texts from me and and just some weird stuff. And they're like, "Hey, is he okay? You know, what's going on here?" And and we learn, you know, the hypoxia. It, it chain it alters your function oh. tremendously and uh and so then uh then i started going to the hospitals and they would take me in and my kidneys would be failing and my numbers would be terrible and my blood oxygen levels would be uh 67 65 and the doctors were like well we don't understand and that was really the hardest part of this um is doctors were looking for uh, some type of thing to blame this on, some type of medical thing. And, uh, and like, uh, you know, as we're talking about, you have a, a, an ankle injury that you've been working through right now, which are painful and terrible, but doctors don't look at internal injuries, uh, uh, internal problems as injuries. And so every doctor we looked at was looking for disease. Well, we needed someone to look for trauma. And we asked them, over and over and said, look, can you look for trauma? We, can you look for altered, uh, you know, anatomy? Is there, is there anything you do just begging these doctors? And no one believed me. Uh, my wife, she was amazing and supportive through this whole time, but she had a husband that was degrading going from, uh, you know, pushing through anything, being this athlete, to literally having to lay in bed and cry in a ball all day long. And it was it was just horrible for her and for my kids to watch, to, to, to see what, you know, and, and, and every time we go to the doctor, they go, well, nothing's wrong. Oh, and I'm like, well, I'm on oxygen. Something's wrong. And they're like, yeah, but we don't understand it. Because, you know, with COVID, it's starting to change the way lungs are looked at. But with my lungs, uh, you know, lungs with COVID people, doctors are starting to go, oh, wait a minute, lungs can be affected differently. Because the only tests really for your lungs were for smokers. Right. There really weren't any, the, the six-minute walk test is for smokers whose uh, chests have degraded over time due to the tar that builds up inside. And so the entire lung degrades at a consistent rate. Uh, or from, you know, cancer, from uh, graft-versus-host disease, things like that. So all the lung testing, all of it was just for literally one set of people, and that was applied to everyone. Now, you know, you're seeing the different treatments coming up with COVID because there are a lot of people who are not smokers that are having lung issues that are 
uh, very similar to, to what I have. There's fluid in the lungs. There's, there's a non-cardiac pulmonary edema that builds up. It's putting pressure on the blood vessels. It's causing heart attacks on ventilators and, and all these different things. Well, these were all the things that I was, I went through uh, a lot over and over. Um, I would uh, they, I would code out and they would have to bring them in there and, and, and get air back into me and you know, suck lung fluid out and stick things down and drain my lungs. And they're like, we don't understand why there's even fluid in the lungs. And, uh, you know, and, and so it was, it was a crazy, crazy thing. Ended up having a, a left side thoracotomy and a right side thoracotomy where they go in and they cut out part of the chest, cut, cut in part of the lung. Uh, they had to repair my diaphragm. And we started, we know now what we didn't know then is that the machine, and this is common with these machines, it's being, uh, it's really hard because it's something that's not being acknowledged by the FDA and, and you're not allow, we're not allowed to hold the uh, medical device company or doctors accountable at this point uh, because they're protected by the FDA. But this machine was electrocuting me. Oh, my gosh. And so we didn't know. But these machines are strong enough to start a car. And the, the battery inside me, we had no idea how powerful it was. But now we know. Uh, that it was electrically burning my lungs. So I had all these little linear scars, and it looked like lightning. So on a, on a CT scan, if you look at my chest, my lungs, or take an X-ray, it looks like these little, like, lightning from the sky, except for it goes from the downward up. And so you can see, basically, the electrical lightning that went through my lungs, and it just scarred and kept continued to burn more and more my lungs. It uh, shocked me so hard, it tore my diaphragm. Uh, and so they had to repair my diaphragm on the left side, and they're going, well, how in the world? The machine's on your right side, but your left side diaphragm's ripped, and we have all this scarring in your left lung. So they removed part of my left lung. They uh, repaired the diaphragm, and uh, they're going, well, this is a traumatic diaphragmatic injury, but there's no way it could happen because the machine's on the other side. It's not like they went into surgery and cut in the wrong spot. It's, you know, the doctor still didn't understand the translation from point A to point B. And uh, it's it's taken a, a – it took all the way until um, I was uh, in December of 2018 over Christmas. Uh, it was Christmas Eve, and uh, I had gone through what's called respiratory failure numerous times. And that's where your, your lungs fail, and which is what we're seeing with this COVID a lot. And the lungs fail, and then they put you on a respirator, and you go through this process. And uh, and my lungs started failing again. And we, uh, it was I couldn't get my oxygen above 70, and we had turned the air up to 15, 20 liters a minute. We had multiple machines on me and tanks, and we were doing everything we could to, to drive me to the hospital five minutes away. Um, but the whole family thought I was going to die that night, and I was really close. Um, but we went in, and that's when they gave me six months to live uh, on Christmas of 2018. Oh so I went to, to where I was on uh, eight liters a minute of uh, oxygen, which is hospice level or uh, palliative care, if you will. It's basically you're, anything over five liters a minute, you're, you're done for. Um, I was at eight liters a minute, 10 is the max you can get in any kind of non-hospital setting. And, uh, and they're like, you know, your lungs are failing and you're done. And that was, uh, that was a, that was a really rough time for us because we had been in trying to mitigate with our business and, and 
using all of our funds, selling all of our assets. We had done everything we could uh, not to reach out for assistance. And, uh, you know, the, the Oakland A's Dietra page, because I'd gone out and mentioned the 20-game uh, celebration on the 50th anniversary year uh, of the Coliseum. And I was out, and I was on oxygen when I was out on the field. Uh, we did the celebration, um, you know, and, and I was struggling, but I, I got out there, and the A's were amazing and helping us get out there. I, could, I can't fly. So we drove. It took us three days, four days to get out oh there. Gosh. We rig up our car, kind of like a rolling ER. Uh, we've got oxygen machines, battery power, tanks. Uh, we had EKG. Uh, we we kind of have everything just to, to manage to keep me alive. And uh, we got out there, and I've got my little oxygen machine that I'm breathing on out on the field. And uh, they start lighting fireworks up. And, and me and Masir and Koch and Bradford are, you know, we're just messing around going, hey, let's see if we can get the oxygen to light, you know, just see if we can explode, explode a baseball player on the ESPN. And, you know, we were joking around, uh, but it was, it was, you know, we were, you know, you're having the most fun you can with it. Cause you know, it, it, in my age playing major league baseball, playing baseball for, for 16 years, you know, that many seasons and uh, you know, being able to do everything to, literally having to have a cart take you around everywhere and and if there's no cart you know it's a wheelchair because i can't, can't walk very far and things like that it's it's just it's something you don't expect to see in one of your teammates you know but the guys were and always have been amazing with Dietra page uh with oakland uh, they had already been helped they'd helped us financially with medical bills uh, after that she uh with the with the ace community fund um you know it's the, the oakland athletics have been they're an amazing organization uh, with everything that they do and everything they've done. And they, and they just really truly care about the family and the player. And, and you don't see that in a lot of organizations, but uh, you know, with Dietra, she, she just is, is amazing working with the players and bringing people together and the organization just has been a hundred percent supportive in everything we needed. And they had been helping. Well, once we got that death sentence, uh, another player pushed us over and said, Hey, um, have you talked to the baseball assistance team? And that's major league baseball's official, official charity for players and, and people involved in the baseball community, uh, for and not just players for umpires, for staff. And, and, uh, and we kind of hit rock meat spot. We were three years of, of not being able to work. Um, I was worse and worse. I was bedridden. I want eight liters a minute of oxygen. I can't, walk from my bed to the bathroom um i looked i looked really 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 bad and i had been given six months to live and uh, i was really worried about what was going to happen with my family and uh and and as because as, we we all expected me to die and, and it was it was a hard hard time period going through that um but you know i thank god because the baseball community Major League Baseball stepped in with that and saved my life. We'll be back in just a moment with more from Micah Bowie. The, the players get very little credit for the great things that they do. And uh, I was in spring training this year talking about my situation. To, I could talk to a few of the teams in spring training and, and just because I wanted to say thank you because, you know, players make a lot of money and as they should and and this is a hardship time for our entire country and people are going through uh, a lot of horrible things right now and we've been through this 
four-year mess of horrible things of lung failure and, and lung damage and irreparable lung damage and 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 kind of like with COVID the doctors go well, we don't know what to do and that's how I was treated for years we don't know what to do with you you know here's just the normal treatments that we would do I had never smoked in my life uh, you know I was never a tobacco user so all the treatments they had were just didn't fit what was going on but it's not like you have a whole lot of people with lung failure that survive. Yeah. So there were no case studies or tests or things. So uh, the players, you know, they donated, they donate to bat and it's all private. And I'm very public about my story because um, they saved my life. Wow. And, 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 and the clubhouses that I went into uh, the managers have some of them were my teammates of mine uh now and coaches and and the players you know there were tears in the clubhouse as the guys were hearing our story and what my children my son daughter had to go through with this with me and you know for me to just be able to say guys thank you y'all they say they save hundreds and hundreds of people's lives but because it's confidential no one ever hears about the awesomeness of the major league baseball player about how much they do donate to charities because the guys' lives keep them private. And uh, so it was just amazing for me to get in the clubhouse and to say thank you to over and over. Oakland was really hard being in there with Foose and uh, Brian and all the clubhouse guys and, 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 and Bob Melvin. I mean, these guys are amazing human beings. And the, the, the clubhouse guys donated a tremendous amount of money to the baseball assistance team. And, and, and part of that went to help me get to the doctors uh once back got involved we were able to get to the mayo clinic um and after in, in minnesota and uh the mayo clinic after a week of testing and going through it the doctors identified exactly what was wrong with me the uh thoracic surgeon there said the wires have electrocuted your lungs you have electrically scarred lungs that's what that linear scarring is and they said, you know, the, you're being shocked to death. You're going to be in respiratory failure. And they gave us very good information. And so in our final appointment, as they're supposed to go through what we do about it, they looked us straight in the eye, and the Mayo Clinic doctors said, we're not going to diagnose this. Go home, prepare your funeral. You're fixing to die. And we, me and my wife just, we kind of, like, we kind of lost it and said, wait told us this was electrical scarring from the stimulator what do you mean you know what this is and they wouldn't diagnose it and they said go home and die so of course we were upset we went and filed with the patient advocate and we were like there's no way y'all told us this we've gone through this and we went through with them and and when you run into a, a, a brick wall in the medical community it's it's tough and they would not budge, even though they knew what it was. They weren't going to treat it. And that was a, a rough moment because the baseball assistance team, uh, these are people in the commissioner's office. They're, they're hearing our updates daily. And they're like, Micah, do we have any good news? What did the doctors say? And you know, we're like, hey, they, they, they let us know what's going on. And then all of a sudden we go, they're not going to treat me. And it was just a gut punch. You know, the people in the office are crying. We're crying. Everyone's on the phone. Uh, my daughter, you know, she's mad at me because 
uh, were chasing doctors down and she's like, they said you were going to die. She wanted me to stay home and spend time with her and just be with the family until I die. And she was, she was really upset that, you know, we were traveling trying to save my life because, uh, she wants to be a doctor and as she's going to do everything for med school. She's like, everyone says you're going to die, dad. I, she's in college and going through all this stuff and seeing stuff. And she's like, you're going to die. Just come home. And we're like, mm. but there's got to be a reason. There's got to be a reason. And, you know, it was a really rough on the family. And, uh, so when we left the Mayo clinic, just, uh, we were planning preparations. We went stopped in Chicago and, uh, Dr. Brunt, uh, who did a groin surgery of, on me in 2007 with the Washington Nationals is in St. Louis. And uh, he had been, we'd been texting him and sending him information. And he said, Mike, can y'all just stop by on your way home? Because straight, it's a straight line from Chicago, St. Louis to Texas. And uh, he said, I just wanted one of my doctors to see us. Give it one last shot here and let one of our doctors see you here. And so we pulled up to Barnes Jewish in St. Louis and uh, walked up to the desk and they said, your room will be ready in 30 minutes. And I went, my room? I said, I'm just here to see a doctor. And I'm like, no, 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 you, you have a room. You're being admitted onto the surgical floor and this is what's happening. And we went, oh, and Dr. Brunt admitted me to the hospital five weeks later, two major surgeries. Um, they removed the spinal cord stimulator from my back and stopped it from electrically killing me. Oh, it was, uh, but it's, it's just an amazing thing. Had, had Dr. Brunt not stepped in and uh, gone, gone through everything, they retested everything. And, uh, and we went through this whole process and, and we couldn't have done that without the baseball community supporting us to be at the hospital, to drive there, the hotels. I mean, we were broke. Uh, we had, we had exhausted all funds after three years. We've done everything we could do. And, and, uh, major league baseball, I just, you know, sports get such a rap sometimes, but they're so private about the good that they do. Mm-hmm. And, uh, they, it's, it's amazing. My story as I was telling this in spring training, there were, were different people, clubhouse guys, staff people coming up to me as they were transporting me from one clubhouse to the other saying, I'm so proud of you for speaking out. My my child was, was born premature and not supposed to make it. And Major League Baseball and the baseball assistance team, players stepped up and took care and saved my child's life. They, they connected us with uh, this doctor. Or they flew us to here and and life after life is being saved by these guys. They just do a, a amazing amazing work with their generosity and uh and nobody hears about it and i just you know you hear these heartbreaking amazing stories of joy of of they're saving people's lives literally yeah. and uh and they're wearing it in the media because they get paid this or get paid that and uh and you know and, and it's it's just been a as you say if there's a positive there's a lot of negatives none of the damage has been taken care of I have 8% of my lungs. I'm on seven liters a minute of oxygen, uh, 24-7. I've got the big machines. I'm tied to machines to live. Uh, as we joke, I'm kind of like uh, Darth Vader or uh, whoever, you know. we gotta got to have my, my, my machines to breathe around and, and stuff. But I'm alive, and I'm able to talk. Yeah. And, uh, and, and I'm able to, to do this. And, and so it's been... It's been a long journey to get to where we are, and uh, of course we're, we're Christians. We have a, we have faith, and 
in December of 2018 when I was in the hospital. Uh, I just was sitting there, and it felt like God, as I was laying there dying, they had called the family in. The doctors had said, hey, bring your kids in, bring everyone in. He's not going to make the night. And uh, brought everybody in. This is probably the third or fourth time we had had to do this over this process, at least. And uh, they said, no, this one's really it. And uh, and God just said, look, Mike, if you keep your mouth shut, there's no point in keeping you alive. You need to speak up. Okay. And that was whenever we went public with our story and reached out for help. And uh, it's been amazing the way that we've been able to have an impact because there's so many people have been not believed and affected by the medical community. And the doctors and nurses are great. They do amazing work. But medicine isn't always in line with what the doctors want to do. The doctors are, aren't really allowed to, uh, to do the things they think they need to. They're, they're bound by the insurance company and the FDA. And there's all these regulations. So they may feel that this treatment may help you. And that we were told this numerous times that this may be available, but there's no way for us to code this correctly. So no one can get paid for it. You know, this isn't a, you know, so, so we can't use these treatments or we can't do this because the doctors aren't, weren't given the freedom to try and save my life. That's incredible. And, and, and hopefully my story will help make change with that, especially with COVID, the way this is going around. You know, I'll pray there's a day I'm in front of Congress to share my story oh, and say, guys, cool. our medical system can do better. Or we have the best and brightest in the world but we're not allowing them to always be the best and brightest. And, uh, and, and so, so there's a lot with the, a lot of passion that we have uh, moving forward with uh, the limited amount that I do have, but uh, you know, it's, it's great. My son is, uh, you know, we, you talk about the mental health side of things, you know, obviously you've got a 17 year old son when this or 16, when it started and, uh, he has what's called KLS. So he went to sleep for six months, um, didn't wake up. Oh, my goodness. When, and, uh, when, how old was he when that happened? Uh, that hit started around uh, 12, 13 is when we noticed it. But stress, um, it's an autoimmune type thing, they believe. It's very rare. But uh, stress hit, and uh, he slept the first six months I was in the hospital. He slept like he would literally, he would be at home and someone would go by and check on him and leave food for him. And, uh, you know, he'd wake up, go to the bathroom, eat some food, and go back to sleep. Um, it's something that he's been battling and, and he's a, a super champ with and has just, uh, done an amazing job. It inspires me that, that he goes through this KLS and, and what it's done to him. But, uh, you know, when you told your dad it's going to die over and over, uh, and the ambulances have to bag him and wheel him out of your house over and over. It just has an effect. And, you know, when there were times the ambulance would sit 30 minutes outside the house because they couldn't drive. I was, they were trying to just keep me alive to drive me to the hospital. And, uh, you know, you, it's just, there's a lot of psychological stuff that happens. So we, uh, you know, we, we've, reached out and, and these are these are areas mental health different things that have helped because you know i've my my wife my whole family my wife has has lost the major league baseball player husband she had yeah and now she's got someone that she has to take care of 24 7 and uh it's she's she's amazing it's 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 deepened our relationship it's it's changed us in ways that 
that I, I pray no one else ever has to go through and be changed. But, uh, you know, there, there's just uh, so many different elements that have happened through this thing. And uh, I'm just very grateful to be alive, number one. Uh, I'm grateful to, to have my family and, and for us as we've come through this, uh, you know, we, we've come through this on the, we're, we're on the flip side. I'm still messed up. I could still be in the hospital tomorrow. I, obviously, we're not going because of COVID. My lungs collapse off and on. I still have what's called non-cardiac pulmonary edema, which we found out from one of the pulmonologists uh, that after the stimulator was removed, and uh, we'd seen this pulmonologist and traveled to see him numerous times and, and had not given us any reason or diagnosis after it was removed wrote to us and, and said, oh, electrocution causes non-cardiac pulmonary edema. Oh. And we're like, my goodness, why couldn't you have said that three years ago and had them remove this and save my lungs? Oh. I don't understand, you know, Michael, why they didn't just remove that immediately when you first started having any problems at all. Well, you know, that it's it's interesting because whenever it happens, like the, the all of the pain management, the neurologists, the... Uh, Spinal, the, the neurosurgeons, uh, they all came in and said, well, this can't cause this problem. Now, it's not because those doctors had all been a part of the development of this machine. It's because the company told them that it can't do that. Mm-hmm. And then our FDA said, well, that can't happen. And so the doctors, they can't say something happens when the FDA and the companies are telling them it can't. It can't happen. So they can't say, well, we're seeing it happen. And they go, well, that can't happen. That's and how do, you, how do you reconcile that? And that's a problem. It's a, it's, a, it's a tremendous problem in our medical community. And since I've spoken up, we've learned I'm not alone. There, there, there are tons of people who have gone through some just extraordinarily uh, rough situations due to the, you know, your eyes see it happening and they can see the damage and see it going on but they're not allowed to be able to report that that's what's going on. Oh my goodness. That, that, that just seems wrong. So there are other people that are, that have had problems with the spinal cord stimulators. Yes. Yes. There's a, there's a tremendous amount of people that are having issues with them. Uh, some similar to mine. Um, you know, there's, there, there's, there's a lot of things, but you know, this ties into, you know, the, the, and I'm giving you a lot of, a lot of stuff here. I haven't said some of this and, some of the things that we've learned, but, you know, my story touches a lot more than just uh, spinal cord stimulators and back issues because we start talking about the opioid crisis. Well, pain medication or opioids, well, a lot of people have pain medication, pain patients are being removed from treatments they've been using for 20 or 30 years. They've never abused them. They've never used them incorrectly, and they help them function normally, and there's no problem. And they're being forced off of what's worked for them for, you know, we get, I can't tell you how many people have said I was in a bad car accident and my back was wrecked 30 years ago. And they removed, they told me I could no longer have the medication I was having. I have, that allows me to work. They've had jobs. They've run their families. They just take medication, uh, pain medication. It's, it's a treatment just like insulin or anything else. And they've lived normal lives. 
well, now they're they're 65 years old and they're being said, no, you can't have this anymore. You have to get the spinal cord stimulator. And they're removing them from what's worked, which was extremely inexpensive, uh, was no addiction issues, no problems. And they're being forced into the this therapy. And, uh, and then they're having all these problems and they're having all the withdrawals and it's causing heart attacks. And uh, you know, it's not handling the pain the same way. And then they're having secondary issues and, uh, you know, it's a real problem. How do you, you know, and I understand drug addiction is a, is a, is a problem, but you're managing pain patients who are really in pain versus, uh, people who abuse things and, you know, you shouldn't, you know, be punished for needing something through no fault of your own. No, they have to apply some common sense, I think, to cases individually it seems like i would think but the uh common sense is something that's that's lacking in uh in our structure and in our country especially when it comes down to medicine uh doctors and opioids and pain patients and uh and 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 it's hard for me because i talk to a lot of players who have back issues from baseball who are debilitated Mm -hmm. uh and you know that they're going through these these pain issues because you know for me even now to get the medication I get I have to be drug tested uh, all the time and I'm like uh, so I'm going through these drug tests which for me to get out of the house some days or stuff so one thankful thing is telemedicine I love it because for the first time I'm not having to go sit with an oxygen tank in an office killing my back and my chest and my lungs and blowing up the fluid I can actually be in a situation where I'm not causing more harm by going to the doctor just to take a drug test so that they can continue to prescribe medication you know there's there does need to be some common sense things applied and uh, I know this was probably a little more of the uh, than what you were kind of looking out when he called me and said hey let's check and see how mike is doing former age reliever how's it going uh you know we've got a little more going on here but uh you know as i'm watching our country and i'm watching uh lung issues especially this COVID, has really brought lungs to the forefront i'm praying that you know there's there's knowledge gained and 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 more therapies and more attentions paid to uh our lungs because People can have lung injuries and not just from smoking. And obviously this disease is just ruining people's lives and destroying, uh, you know, you see what it's doing to the economy and stuff. So, uh, you know, hopefully uh, I had I, the, the one thing saving grace that I had is I have no secondary health issues. All I have are orthopedic injuries from baseball. Right. Because had I had any secondary health issue, we never would have gotten to this point. I would be dead. They would have blamed anything happening on me to some genetic disorder or something that mutated or was caused uh, due to a traumatic event. Um, there's lots of different explanations doctor use, doctors use, um, but I, I would be dead had I had a heart issue or had I not had I not been a professional athlete taking care of my body and not drank and not smoked and not done tobacco and you know, worked out my whole life and stayed in a great shape and watched my weight and eat well. And, uh, you know, you're not going to be a major league baseball player or play baseball very long if you don't take care of your body. And, and, uh, had I had any secondary issue, we never would have gotten to where we were that the machine was electrically burning my insides. 
I mean, it damaged my liver, diaphragm, lungs, kidneys. I mean, I, I've got I've got electrocution, my adrenal glands, uh, my uh, vocal cords, my throat, my esophagus. Uh, gave you know heart. Uh, yeah, damaged my heart. Um, uh, to the to to the point, uh, while I was being monitored uh, after a surgery, we turned it back on, and they were monitoring me in multiple places at the time because I was in a like an ICU type setting, or I, I don't remember if it was his ICU, but it was an ICU type setting, and they had multiple sets of monitors, and uh, they thought someone had hit me with the paddles from uh, to like shock me to bring me back to life. That's oh. how hard it shocked my heart, and it rotated my heart, and uh, so. It, this is, so we never would have gotten to understand the problem. I just would have died. Our thanks again to Micah Bowie for joining us on A's Plus. Listen for part two of this podcast coming up soon. Our producers today were G. Allen Johnson and King Kaufman. Thanks again for listening. A's Plus is a production of the San Francisco Chronicle. Support A's Plus and all of the Chronicle's journalism by signing up for a Chronicle membership at sfchronicle.com slash pod.